0: How can you remain steadfast if you haven't been made steadfast already?
1: So like waiting on Him in the midst of the trial, like not trying to manipulate things, not trying to do things on your own, not taking matters into your own hands, but just saying, leaning into the Lord again, rejoicing in your weaknesses because He's the one that's strong. He's the one that's going to act on your behalf. Like He's the one that's going to bring deliverance from this trial. Whatever that might look like, whether here or in eternity, because it might not happen here on, on this side of heaven, you know, the, the resolution to something. Hi, this is Ali. And
0: this is Kyle.
1: And we're here to chat about doing all things in the name of the Lord Jesus.
0: Here we go. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.
1: When you think about trials, you don't think about joy. Like you just, Mm -hmm. you don't associate the two. And so when it says, count it all joy, I had to step back and go, huh? (laughs) Like, what what you saying? Like, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Our natural response to trials is not joy. So if if that's not the natural response, then what does he mean then when he's saying to count it all joy? So I had to look that up because I wasn't mm-hmm. sure what he meant um mm-hmm. by by all of that. Yeah. So it's not like God is saying, like, don't be sad, you know, mm-hmm. to, to count it all joy. He's not negating the sadness that comes through trials because mm-hmm. we have to take the Bible in its full context mm-hmm. and know that Jesus wept mm-hmm. over the sin of the world, that God is grieved over sin, mm-hmm. that Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So if that's the case, then I by saying, count it all joy. I just had to wrap my mind around it that he's not saying, okay, so just be happy. And it's, you know, what does he mean by joy? And I wanted to talk about that later, but like, it's not saying like, okay, just be happy or fake happiness through the trial. Because again, I just, I want to go back to that. Like if you look at the entire scripture from Old Testament to New Testament, you see that he is a God that is grieved by sin. And so to say, count it all joy, he's not saying fake be happy or be happy. Like, so what is he exactly saying? And I think that that was my biggest question. Like, what what, what do you mean? <laughs> okay. Um. So what I... Then I went to Matthew 5.12.
0: So Matthew 5.12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
1: So with that, rejoice and be glad for your your reward is great in heaven. So it was this, okay, what? So in the context, he's talking about being persecuted. And so he's saying rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. So that is something to rejoice over. Mm. Our reward in heaven. Mm. And then... Paul also talks about, let's go to 2 Corinthians yeah. twelve ten.
0: Yeah, let's do it. I love it. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong.
1: So I think there's a sense of contentment, too, and rejoicing in his weaknesses. So when you think of, like, trials and you think of, like, I can't do this, I can't go through this, there's a sense of, like, I'm weak during, during this trial, so he is strong. Like, he's the one that is strong. He's the one that makes us strong. So I'm, I was, like, tying together rejoice. Because your reward is great in heaven, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial. Like you have something, an inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven. And he talks about it in Revelation twenty one four. If you want to go there.
0: He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away.
1: So that's kind of the inheritance that I was thinking of. Like, okay, so there is an eternity there is a future for us that awaits us in christ where he will wipe away every tear meaning like no more sickness no more pain no more sorrow no more trials um, of what we know and so then what do we rejoice in that we have a future and eternity with christ where all of that's going to be gone And in the meantime, though, we can rejoice in our weaknesses because he's the one that is strong and he shows himself as strong. Mm -hmm. I think in the same verse from James 1, 2, it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And I think that's something also to rejoice in is that through the trials, because it's counted all joy. When you meet trials, because, for, you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Mm -hmm. So that, too, like, there's this sense of – so also I had to look at what steadfastness means because I wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. And it says steadfastness means endurance, patiently waiting for the Lord, waiting for his deliverance. So, like, waiting on him in the midst of the trial, like, not trying to manipulate things, not trying to do things on your own, not taking matters into your own hands, but just saying – leaning into the lord again rejoicing in your weaknesses because he's the one that's strong he's the one that's going to act on your behalf like he's the one that's going to bring deliverance from this trial um whatever that might look like whether here or in eternity because it might not happen here on on this side of heaven you know the the resolution to something. So why can we rejoice in that? Because as we go through the trials and as we're enduring, as we're waiting on the Lord and waiting for him and his timing and leaning on him, it shows us our loyalty to him. It shows us what, where our faith is really. Um, It shows that we were waiting on him and trusting him and not just like, okay, I'm trusting God when things are good. And then when things are bad, then up, oh, my faith goes away. You know what I mean? Like it's no, I trust God in the midst of all of it, the good and the bad.
0: So good. I'm very much encouraged. This idea of counting it all joy, my brothers. First of all, that word in Greek for brothers, it just means brothers and sisters. You could basically read this as count it all joy, Christians when you meet trials of various kinds. So this is for us all. Yeah, this passage in James saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast. Okay, just wrapping my mind around that, it automatically pointed me back to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Paul writes, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Wow. Okay. So, considering what is the will of God? Well, snapshot, this is just a quick introduction into that. Rejoice always. That verse 16 of that, rejoice always. And I just thought, man, do I even really understand what rejoicing really even means? You know, I think about that. Like, counting all joy, rejoice, and all this stuff. And I think, um, turn to Psalm 40, 16. Okay. Psalm 40, 16 says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. So I think there's a, a little picture there of what it means to rejoice. It's what do we say? It's, it's saying with our mouth, great is the Lord. And then there, in, earlier in that verse, of verse 16, it said, all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. There's some semblance of being glad in the Lord, seeking the Lord, and saying great is the Lord. So there's this semblance of what rejoicing means. Rejoice, count it all joy. Like it just seems to be all carrying through in this way and you know here here's the thing about the thessalonians that really gets me like with the context of them they the thessalonian church is like i think a picture of the church that i think is so encouraging to me you've got a gentile church who has come to faith and you can read about this in first thessalonians one they come to faith okay they abandon their idols which idols is even in this context, is not just the little figurines. It means so much more. Let me just turn to that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says in verse 4, "'For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake.' And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Wow. Okay, so that alone, if you... Just really, just to summarize that, he's saying they received the word of the Lord, they received the gospel in much affliction. So they had the affliction of James 1, of what we're talking about. They had that, and they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I, I just, like, that's why we see it's possible, because of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit inside us, they receive it with joy, and then they still undergo much affliction, but... The, the gospel resounded forth from them, it resounded from them so powerfully because of their affliction and their joy in the gospel, in the Lord, despite the circumstances, because of what they had set their hope in, that it went throughout all of this region to where Paul, the apostle Paul even writes himself, that he didn't need to do anything. He said, look, he even says, so that we need not say anything Like he had nothing more to add or to say because of the gospel work that had gone forth from them. So this is getting at a little bit more of a picture of what it means to rejoice always in affliction and to do it with great joy in the process, in the Holy Spirit. And I think that's kind of a natural implication of that is that It goes forth in gospel sharing and gospel gladness. And you know what? The other people in those regions were responding to it because they were saying there's something different about them. They're undergoing affliction. They know them and they're not reacting the same. In fact, they left all their idols. They still have the affliction, but they are different. There is something that is remarkably different about their lives and how they are responding to this affliction. And that's what the example that Paul is pointing to. And I love that. So then um, I can't not mention also with this context of James one, how we, if you drop down to verse 12 in James one, okay? It's kind of like going back and forth from count it all joy, my brothers, okay? Talks about these trials. And then in verse 12, James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay? Like this idea of, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So, how can you remain steadfast if you haven't been made steadfast already? But we see right here in verses 2-4, through it says, James writes, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So you didn't have steadfastness before, but the testing actually produces steadfastness in you. Steadfastness meaning like, yes, we could look at the original Greek word and all that, but once we zero in on that and we understand that this is a, a pretty good translation of that original Greek word, steadfastness, yes, it's a good word. Steady means not moving, not wavering, right? And so if you were wavering before, you need the trials to actually make you steadfast, to make you unwavering and steady. Like God, if we're made more Christ-like, all throughout the Old Testament, we see God is steadfast, his steadfast love, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we're being made more Christ-like through our trials. Awesome. And then, again, just to hone this in, it says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. So again, you can't get steadfast unless you go through trials. You want to be steadfast? Go through trials, and then you will get steadfast, and then it's... A call on us to also remain steadfast. Honestly, a big question that I think is looming over all of this, what I really want to read this in context of is asking the question Does God give us trials? Or does Satan give us trials? You know, because here's an example. So, in one case, we've got a biblical instance like in the book of Acts that says that the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do something. And then Paul, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, he says that Satan prevented them from coming and doing something. So, um, let's read this in context just to get a full picture, and then we'll unpack that for a sec. And now, an ad.
1: You have a problem.
0: Me? What do you mean?
1: You have relationship issues.
0: (sighs) I'm sorry. What did I do?
1: Well, it's not just you. We all have relationship issues with family, friends, spouses, dating, bosses, classmates, people from church, and most importantly, our relationship with God.
0: We have a relationship course and it's coming soon.
1: Go to the link in our show notes to sign up for our email waitlist to get a massive discount on our course when it launches. 1
0: Thessalonians 2. 17 through 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Okay, so you've got that picture where Paul is directly claiming that Satan hindered us. We couldn't do this. Okay, then if you were to flip over to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16, verse 7, and Luke writes, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, is it God who brings us trials, or is it Satan? Like, which is it? Is there a contradiction here? The answer is no, and let me just unpack that for a second. So I think it's Paul understanding in full context that the acts that are so detrimental to the actual work of the gospel are the enemy. It's definitely clear that the enemy is attacking and this is not what he wants to happen, right? However, I know that he has in mind the, the context of Job. Satan was allowed by God to inflict some harm in Job's life, losing basically a lot of his family, almost all of his possessions, so on and so forth. And we understand that, well, Satan was allowed to inflict that as a test, but God was the one allowing Satan. God is in control. God knows what he would and would not allow at all times For all people in all cases. Satan can only do anything because God allows it. While Satan may have meant it for harm, God allowed it for their good because only God knows all things at all times, and he foreknows even what he will allow Satan to do for God's ultimate good purposes. God had ultimate good purposes for Job to restore him. God was testing job and if you think about this idea of testing and trials okay it's not like a professor that i had in college that wanted to give us a test and he touted himself as one of the hardest professors in literature ever and he wanted to see like like okay just imagine a professor that is touting themselves as being the hardest professor and you're gonna really have a hard time on my test okay that is not a picture of god right when god gives tests he he has the goal of us passing. He's the professor that I want you to do well, and I am instructing you so that you can pass, and I'm there with you in helping you study and even alongside you in the test. So when you think about God being the one who allows the test, remember, he's a good professor. He wants you, and he is the teacher. He wants to see us do well. He wants to see us pass. As I was saying about Paul being tested, where he says, Satan hindered us, okay? Perhaps it was something catastrophic in the now that was clearly the hand of Satan, okay? There were clear acts of things happening to Job that were by the hand of Satan, not God, okay? Now, remember, again, how God allowed Satan to bring calamity upon Job, okay? God knew what he would do and what he would ultimately do to bring good upon Job. So God is the teacher that gives us trials, gives us tests, because it's for our good. It's producing steadfastness in us. He wants to see us pass. He wants to see us grow. That's the ultimate goal. And we know that this is God's goal for us because Jesus even said it himself. If you turn to John 15, check that out. This is really getting at the essence and the heart of God behind trials and how we understand him. Okay, Let me read chapter 15, probably about eight verses here real quick. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And keep in mind, Jesus is the vine and being God himself, he is also the gardener. He's also doing the pruning. But it's for the, the goal of growth. The goal is that you would bear fruit. God wants to see apples and oranges and all kinds of fruit in his garden. And it's like if the gardener actually just looked at his garden and was seeing some fruit come up and said, oh, and there's thorns and there's thistles next to it and there's dead branches. And I don't really want to take that away. Like I don't, I don't feel comfortable with doing that. Like I, I don't, uh, like it would actually be detrimental to his garden. In fact, all of the plants would actually die and they'd have to be thrown out. So the very fact that he prunes us, because we are the branches, we are being pruned, the very fact that he prunes us means that he cares for us. He loves us by pruning us. So that's why we can rejoice in our suffering, because we see the very hand of God in our pruning. The trials, the afflictions, these are for making us steadfast, making us more Christ-like, to bear fruit. Man. And then when I think about, well, what is this fruit? Like, what is this fruit that Jesus is talking about that you may bear fruit? Well, first and foremost, And what I think undergirds everything is his commands. It's Jesus' commands to love God with all that you are, before and above everything, and love other people. These are the two commands that he gave us, so this is the fruit that bears in it. It's our obedience to do these commands. And so that's what Jesus really wants us to see us do in our lives. If you could boil it down to anything and everything, he wants to see us love him more and above everything and before everything. And then he wants to see us love others. So that's the fruit that bears. And it takes trials and afflictions to get that fruit out of us. Man, I'm so thankful for it. Like that's what it should it produce in us, you know? So I just want to take a look at Psalm 119. There's a few passages in Psalm 119 that I think really get at the heart of rejoicing in affliction. Psalm 119, 67 says, "'Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word.'" Man, like that's awesome. And then if you follow that up with the very next verse, right in that context, the psalmist writes, "'You are good and do good.'" Teach me your statutes." So the psalmist has this clear understanding that he was going astray before he was afflicted. This is the pruning so that he bears fruit. And this is clearly right here. And it's just this treasuring the discipline of God because you understand God's goodness and his heart because he writes right after that, you are good and do good. Wow, love that. Okay, jump down to verse 71 through 72. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Okay, and then last one, take a look at Psalm 119, 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Man, I think if that summarizes all of what we've kind of been talking about here is anguish, trials, trials, trouble and anguish have found me out like i think about how paul writes sometimes he's in deep anguish and i think about how you talked about with jesus weeping and a man of sorrows you think about this but where's my delight my delight is in your commandments it's in god's truth in his word and that's so rich and then let's not forget the promise of romans 8:28. turn there with me i've said maybe before that this is like my life verse and I think it's something that has gripped me and taken hold of me in so many ways but Romans eight twenty eight says and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose man God's purpose as you'll see in verse 29 of that is to make us more Christ-like so all things that's trials and calamities it's the good things it's all things work for the good of those who love god and are called according to his purpose like that's that's it so we remember that in light that this is working for my good and we see throughout the breadth of scripture how all of this has synergy in it to really speak life into us and how we can say Yes, it's Satan afflicting me. Yes, it's these things, but it's God who's allowing it. If God doesn't allow it, then it would totally be for our bad. But as Satan means it for harm, as you remember Joseph saying, as Joseph said to his brothers, you meant this for harm, but God meant it for good. This is what you can say when you see the affliction as Paul did of Satan having his hand as he did with Job. Yes, it's, it seems to be affecting our goal for the gospel and what's happening. But in light of God's sovereignty, we see it's for our good. And God's will and purposes will be accomplished. Again, I just want to read over 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, as this was the church who was getting it, who was rejoicing in joy when they received the word, and that was going out from them to be an encouragement And sharing the gospel throughout all that region to where Paul didn't even need to say anything more, and then he still encourages them to not lose sight of this. And he gives them instructions in verse 16 that says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And with that, this is like what we have written now on our board, where it says RPT. And this is like what I'm trying to reinforce in my life and to understand, rejoice always. That's that first command in verse 16. And then I, so as I thought about, what does it mean to rejoice always? Like how, how can we do this? How does this live out? Like, I don't even know if I understand what rejoicing means or to rejoice always. So as I was considering, what does rejoicing mean? God had me reading through this Psalm by his sovereignty anyways and he showed me this and he, and it says in Psalm 34:1 I will bless the Lord at all times his praise shall continually be in my mouth and like so I get this sense of bless the Lord his praise shall continually be in my mouth it's this idea of praising the Lord Blessing the Lord and worshiping Him. It's recounting what He has done and who He is. God, you are great. God, you are magnificent. God, you are awesome. God, I love you. All of this and more and more and more. It's praise. Let that continually be on your lips. Then the other part of that, the R and then the P. P stands for pray without ceasing. That was in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray without ceasing. I think this looks like talking with God always. And it's right here in Psalm 34, one, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's this perpetual talking with God, this praying, right? And um, I think I've heard somebody mention that it, it, imagining like a cell phone, right? That instead of uh, like hanging up, you just kind of like always leave it on and you could just like pick up and call, When you think about like texting or something, right? You don't have to like start a new thread conversation or anything like that. You just text in all the time. God, you were great. God, I need help. God, I love you. All this stuff. It's just constantly, constantly throughout your day as you go about life. You don't have to restart and even say "Dear heavenly father each time. Like it's just almost like an ongoing conversation. So then that last part, teeth. For thank God. Thank God in all circumstances. Well then, um, God brought me upon Psalm 33. So check out Psalm 33, verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. When you think about thanking God in all circumstances, you know, back when we were talking about chapter 34, I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. And it's like this idea of constantly talking with to God with rejoicing and praising, while also thanking God is what Paul's command was. So there's thankfulness, and that gives rejoicing, and there's praying and communicating with God. And maybe there's sprinkled in this idea of asking God for things, telling him what's on your heart, lamenting. Yes, that's all a part of our life, but rejoicing and giving thanks are definitely two out of three of those elements that should always be upon us. There's always thankfulness that should be billowing out of us and, and just leading to rejoicing in all circumstances. Like that's a biblical picture of counting all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And I think like something that you were getting at is it doesn't always mean happy. It doesn't mean like I'm happy because I found chocolate in my pocket or something like that. Um, It's the state of blessedness, the sense deep-rooted joy that I think Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, blessed. I think it's getting at this idea of smiling through the pain, smiling in the tears, maybe singing in spite of the circumstances, right? You bring yourself to reflect on the Lord. And then that leads to singing with joy because of him.
1: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at in all things official for the latest happenings.